Hello, and welcome to Cream of Caroline, America's most riveting casserole lifestyle podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. I am welcoming an old friend to the cream today, Sarah Porwall, nay Armstrong. We had not connected in a decade, even though we both live in New York City, but this summer, Sarah had a poem published in the New York Times, and I thought it was really important to share it with you listeners. Sarah is a breast cancer survivor, and she channeled her experience into poetry. And today on The Cream, she will share her story and the perspective she took away from a really difficult period. Uh, I hope this episode inspires you to take care of yourself, um, touch your boobs more often, and share a meal with someone special. We will have casserole, I promise. And of course you all know, it's gonna be creamy. What's in the oven? Macaroni ham casserole today, found on page 283 of the 1983 Southern Living Annuals recipe cookbook. And this is coming from Mrs. David Marco of Ibgensville. I think I'm saying that correctly, Maryland. Uh, And this casserole I think is perfect for a low key weeknight meal. And it would also be a great vehicle for leftover proteins that you have in the fridge from the holidays, ham, chicken, and turkey. So uh, combine two cups of cooked elbow noodles or pasta shells with one and a half cups each diced ham and chicken. I think you could easily substitute in turkey here. Uh, Add one cup grated Swiss cheese, three quarters of a cup sliced green olives for a little pizzazz, one half cup chopped onion, eight ounces of sour cream, three quarters of a cup of milk, a quarter teaspoon dried mustard, and some black pepper. You're going to pour all of that into a casserole dish and the topper, a quarter cup or more crushed potato chips. Bake and boom, it's a party in your mouth, and that's what's in the oven. Casseroles in the news. The Transylvania Times announced the Sea Off Neighbors annual holiday and caroling party to be held on December 9th. Word on the street? Nine-year-old Cora Manor has been baking up a storm and there will be cookies. Apparently, there will also be casserole. More than one attendee plans on bringing Lula's famous chicken casserole. One of the darker pieces of casserole news I've seen lately is coming out of KXNet in Bismarck, North Dakota. Last week, the site published a recipe for easy Asian casserole. First, the only Asian I know is Chef Wilson Chung, who you can follow on Instagram at Chef Wilson Chung XXX. Second, the recipe in question calls for browning beef and then throwing two bags of crushed ramen, frozen broccoli, and soy sauce into a skillet. That's it. It's easy. I can see it might be vaguely Asian, but it is not a casserole, my friends. Be diligent. And finally, the reporter in northern Pennsylvania recently asked senior citizens residing at Wellington at Hershey's Mill about their all-time favorite holiday recipes. Jackie Baker's specialty is oyster dressing. Her husband Earl is fond of drop ginger cakes, which a woman has probably made for him his entire life, right, Earl? And a clear friend of the cream, Maggie Craigle, makes a dynamite chicken casserole with cream of mushroom soup, one large can of pet milk, water chestnuts, Chinese noodles, and chicken. Now that sounds like an easy Asian casserole to me and your casseroles in the news. All right, listeners, 
we have a very special guest tonight with us on Cream of Caroline, Sarah Porwall, who I know better as Sarah Armstrong. Uh, we met at the University of Georgia, what seems like one million yeah. years ago. How many years ago was Two, that? 2002? Two? Yes. So 17 years ago. 17 years ago. Wow. I think we're a lot. I think we're cuter. Yeah, <laughs> definitely cuter. Definitely cuter. So in addition to being a college friend, she was a sorority sister at Sigma Kappa, and she is now the senior client director at CBX, and she is a breast cancer survivor and a part-time poet. Yes? <laughs> I like calling myself that. That's nice. I love it. And yeah. so you've been in New York. You have worked in advertising and now branding yes yeah so tell me a little bit about cbx and yeah what it what does it mean to work in branding yeah <laughs> i know it's um it's kind of hard to pinpoint well and first i'll say i worked for about 13 or 14 years in advertising and so that is really all about telling a brand story um, to consumers in a way that it feels like a story it's a commercial it's a long-form video um, it's a printed piece or something on the website and you really get a sense of what the brand is and what the product can do for you and how it fits into your life. Um, why the reason that I decided to move to CBX is and, and work more in packaging design and branding is I feel like that's the beginning of a brand story. That's really when you get to decide what the brand is and what it's going to represent and what's going to be important to it and how it communicates with consumers. So for instance, one of the products that I work on is a men's shaving product and the company that makes the product came up with it, they came up with the packaging, they came up with the name, but then they said, we have no idea what this is supposed to mean. And our, my company came in and we um, you know, worked with them and did research and, and whatnot and came up with ideas um, of what the brand would actually stand for and how it would talk and, and the, the tonality. And now we do social media posts and things like that. And it's very distinct and you can tell exactly what the brand stands for and who it's for. And, and um, you know, just that helps drive the new products that come out in the line because of this philosophy that the brand um, is all about now. But that just came from some really smart and talented people sitting around talking about it and deciding kind of what made sense in the marketplace for that brand. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, you have lived a little bit of a New York dream. And the other thing that you've done successfully that most women find impossible is to find an amazing partner. Yes. Oh my gosh. Before you're like 40. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So my husband's name is Matt, mm -hmm. and we met through a mutual friend years ago, um, and we did not hit it off to begin with, but it was mainly that we just didn't really pay any attention to each other because our heads were in different places, hearts were in different places, and then we were reintroduced at that same friend's birthday party, and just... It's, I mean, it sounds super cheesy, but it's like there was this spark, this magnetism, mm -hmm. and it's just suddenly the rest of the night we had to be just touching or next to each other within each other's eyesight the rest of the night, and the rest is kind of history. It is history. Yeah. yeah. But also with that, with that relationship, so the crazy thing we were just talking about, you were diagnosed with breast cancer at 32. Mm -hmm. How many days after you got engaged to this wonderful man? Yeah. So the way it went, um, I'll, I'm going to take the long way to answer that story. That sounds great. Um, so basically one night, I want to say it was maybe a Monday night. We were going, we lived together in Brooklyn and we were going to sleep. And as we were just cuddling, going to sleep, 
Matt kind of said, hey, what's, what's that? I said, what do you mean, what's that? He said, I feel something that just doesn't feel right. And I said, oh, it's, you know, and he was kind of holding me and said, I thought, you know, I said, maybe that's just my rib. Uh, I don't know. We're laying, you know, sideways and let me just, let me just sit up and see what you mean. And I touched right where he had pointed to and instantly just knew that's not right. That, that doesn't feel right. And a lot of people ask me, how do you know something's wrong? What does it feel like? And I think it's different for everybody. But for me, the best way I can describe it is it's almost like it felt more kind of like a, like a soft jelly bean is kind of what it felt like. There was definitely something hard, but not super hard. I don't know. Yeah. It, that, that's kind of the best way I can describe it. It felt about the size of a jelly bean or a marble. And um, I instantly started crying because I instantly imagined the worst. And he said, it's going to be okay. You're going to go to the doctor. They're going to check it out. Like, you're only 32. It's fine. Um, so the next morning, I made an appointment with my gynecologist. And I was able to get in the next day. And I went in to see her. And what's crazy, and what, what where I, I wasn't sure if I should feel better or worse about it, is that I'd actually just seen her two weeks before. And as any ladies listening know, when you go to the gynecologist, they also do a breast exam. Yes. And um, she didn't find anything out of the ordinary. This is crazy. Yeah. So then I go back to her. It's been two weeks since I last saw her. And this was two days since I found it, um, since we found it. And, um, you know, I let her know what was going on. I probably gestured to the general area, but she started doing the exam and she immediately felt it. And the last thing you want is for your doctor to look scared because she looked a little scared. And she said, this was not here two weeks ago. And so she immediately sent me to a breast specialist on the Upper East Side. And um, so that day, you know, I filled out paperwork. I, at 32, had my first mammogram and ultrasound. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, it's a cyst. I've, I had had ovarian cysts in the past, and, and I thought maybe this is just a different cyst different location and I've heard of that happening before I had had a co-worker that had a cyst in her breast and Mm -hmm. and that's all it was so anyway that afternoon um or after that appointment Matt and I were gonna have a date night and usually I plan our date nights but he said I want to plan this one this time and so we met up and uh I was a little early coming down and so he said you know we've got some time before dinner why don't we walk around and I just met him at the Christopher Street stop right around the corner from Mm -hmm. where we are now and I was telling him all about the appointment and, you know, he was trying to make me feel better. And I said, okay, it's going to be fine. You know, I'm going to go in. They think I should do a biopsy next week. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. And then we started talking about other things. And uh, he had kind of strategically been walking mm-hmm. me around the West Village. And I hadn't really been paying attention because I was in my own little world. And he said, oh, look, Perry Street kind of look up at the sign and and Perry Street was really special to us because on this one particular block it's where we spent a lot of our first date actually because we had gone to Smalls the Jazz Club right on 10th Street right around from Mm -hmm. where you live and uh, we just you know we had spent um, some time I guess you could say just talking and getting to know each other and kissing on the front stoop of somebody's apartment at two in the morning on (laughs) our first date. And so we always joke, that's our stoop. That's our stoop. This is our street. And so, you know, he walked me to Perry, you know, we're on Perry Street. He said, let's sit down. And I remember thinking, we always look at our stoop, but we never sit on our stoop. Right. Why are we sitting on our stoop this time? <laughs> so I instantly knew that something was up, and sure enough, he proposed to me right on uh, that stoop. I'm it was getting very, mushy. It was yeah. It was if this very is like video. It's like. Uh. <laughs> 
was very sweet. You know, we called our parents and went out to dinner and had a lovely time. Uh, and so that was, I think, on a Thursday. And so we go through the weekend. The following Monday, I went in um, to do the biopsy. And I hadn't mentioned anything to my parents yet. You hadn't told them yet. No. But I felt like after getting the biopsy done, which is not a pleasant experience, because um, they basically have to jab a needle into your boob and mm-hmm. take out some of whatever's in there to, to do a sample of it. Uh, I just remember going home that evening and saying, you know, I really should just call my parents and tell them what's going on. And my mom made me feel better because she said, oh, and I, I had actually had a cyst when I was younger too. It's going to be fine. And that's what everybody just kept thinking it was. I was too young. And um, the next day I was at work and my same gynecologist who I had known for years and years, she called me and she's the one that gave me the news. And which is, you know, really hard news to hear. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like impossible news if you, if we weren't humans in the human condition and we just have to keep marching on. Yeah. I right? mean, luckily like, it was five o'clock in the afternoon, so nobody would really miss me if I left work. So I immediately left work, got in a cab, went home. Uh, the crazy thing, so I told Matt as soon as I got home, but the crazy thing on top of that was that Matt was flying out the next morning to go to India for work. <laughs> so... You know, I think the first person we actually told was the director of that film because Matt had to say, if I have to fly to India, I might need to come back. So can you guys start working on a backup plan if I can't stay for this whole trip? Uh, But I insisted he go because I said nothing can actually happen in the next 10 days, really. So just go and I'll do doctor's appointments and I'll tell my parents and they'll come up and they'll help, you know, emotionally support me through this and then come back when you can. Um, So that's basically what what we did. He he left the next day, uh, went to India, and then my parents came up that weekend. I had a doctor's appointment to... um, to just hear kind of what the diagnosis was after getting all the results back from the biopsy. Mm -hmm. And that was actually a really scary and hard meeting. Uh, My mom made it up up in time for that. My dad stayed at home. But yeah, it was was really hard diagnosis uh, or hard to hear the diagnosis in the end, uh, as my doctor said, and although I guess I appreciate it more now, though I didn't appreciate it at the time, he said, well, if you're ever gonna get breast cancer, this is the one to get. I said, okay. Cool. So right. I should be happy. <laughs> you know, it's kind of mixed emotions here. But there's just, there were so many things I hadn't really thought about. So uh, I ended up doing a lumpectomy. Luckily, it was small enough and it hadn't spread. So that was all good news. It was technically stage one, is what they would have called it. Okay. Uh, I made him tell me, like, what stage is it? I need factual information that I can tell people so that people know what's happening. Um, but yeah, it was small enough that they could do a lumpectomy. And, uh, and it hadn't spread, so that was all really good news. And I thought, great, so we'll do the lumpectomy, and I'll be good to go, right? You're gonna take it out, so I'm gonna be good to go. Ooh, dinner's ready. I know, I'm, gonna ch- I'm actually gonna pause, yes. and I'm gonna check the Brussels sprouts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I needed to do a lumpectomy. Uh, the other thing that I learned about in that, in that session with my doctor is that going through chemo can also make you infertile and can make you go through menopause early. And Matt and I had been planning to have kids. So he said, okay, I recommend as soon as you can go freeze your eggs. Like I have to think about that now. We literally just got engaged 
And I think we had been engaged three weeks before we walked into the NYU fertility clinic and I started getting injections for hormones so that I could... In the middle of being treated for breast cancer? Well, it was before treatment started. And that's the thing. So I had my surgery. I had my surgery. I actually did make Matt come home. He was only in India for two or three days. And then I said, okay, we're going to have this surgery. I really want you back in time for that. So, uh, so he turned around and came back as soon as he could. And, um, and yeah, so I had my lumpectomy surgery. And then as soon as I had recovered from that, then I went and started the process to freeze my eggs. And I kept joking because my mom kept, kept kept asking me, when are you guys going to engage? When are you guys going to have kids? And I'm like, all right, well, we've got some eggs and embryos in the freezer now. Are you happy, mom? Um, we actually found out on Thanksgiving Day how many embryos we had. So that was pretty cool to be like, wow, we have all these children right. now. <laughs> um, so luckily, my surgery went flawlessly well. And everything went perfectly with doing the egg freezing and that whole procedure. Uh, So that was just nice to get those things over with. And I told the doctors, I said, you know, how how much time can pass between lumpectomy and starting chemo? And they said, we'd really like you to do it between four and six weeks after. And I said, what's the latest I can do? And you still feel comfortable? And they said, up to eight weeks. And I said, great, because I really want to get through Christmas. I had a whole trip planned with my family to do this river cruise thing Mm -hmm. through Europe for seeing the Christmas markets. And I really didn't want to be going through chemo in the middle of that. Um, So luckily, I got to go through the holidays. The other thing I had to do was go through genetic testing to see if I had the BRCA gene. Right. Because that would have other implications for potentially my sister, my future kids, other women in my family. Uh, So luckily, that came back negative. So all all of the other things I had to do, which I had never thought I would have to do, usually you just think of treatment, but then there are other things to prep for treatment, to think about your body, uh, things that I had never thought about before. Well, things that you don't hear about. No, I, no. Yeah, I just, I had never, I had never heard of it before. And I guess, why would you? Nobody really wants to talk about it. And because just saying cancer on its own is something that people don't really feel comfortable talking about. Right. So just doing all of those things. Um, and like I was mentioning to you earlier, um, I also, so this was, I guess, before chemo started. Chemo started in January of, that would have been 2016. And I had four rounds of a really harsh kind that they call, um, oh, it's funny. I'm trying to think of what it's called now. <gasps> That's a beautiful thing to yes. forget. AC and what's the other one? I can't even remember anymore because it's been so long. Yay. <laughs> but that was, a, that was the harsher one was first. And uh, you did that every other week. And then the less harsh, I'm doing air quotes, mm-hmm. less harsh version uh, or kind of chemo I did after that was for 12 weeks okay. every week. So 16 total rounds of chemo. It was after the second one that my hair started coming out and all of that fun stuff. Cause that's the other thing, you know, you hear about your hair going away. Um, but also, I mean, I think about, I watch movies where there's cancer patients and they always have big, full eyebrows. I'm like, that's not what you look like. All of it goes away. Oh, even you the know? eyebrows. Yes. Yes, eyebrows go away. Um, there was a, a woman that uh, I was good friends with, an old coworker, and she reached out to me because she had had breast cancer, and she made me feel a lot better. She wrote me a really sweet email, and one of the things she said, you know, I'm here to make you laugh. I'm here if you want to cry. But when she said, I'm here to make you laugh, um, she said, chemo, the best Brazilian. <laughs> and I said, oh, even that hair goes away? I had no idea. No, no Nose hairs, gone. 
yeah, I know. All these things that you just don't think about. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, you know, so anyway, there's, there's losing hair. There was just going through chemo and how weird you feel. I don't even know how to describe it. It's, um, you're tired. I was luckily not nauseous. I know some people obviously can get really nauseous. And I think with earlier types of treatment, you would get really nauseous, but they've, they've gotten really good at, um, you know, dosing things a certain way or giving you preventative steroids to help with that. Um, so I was never nauseous, but just, you don't feel good. And you have what we call chemo brain where it just, I felt so stupid because my brain just couldn't work like it used to. And I would know before I'd be able to think about things really quick. And especially at work, I'm moving around. So you're still working. Yes. Yeah. That was the other thing. Um, I worked through all 16 rounds of chemo. What's also crazy is in March of 2016, my boss was diagnosed with ovarian and uterine cancer. Yeah. Uh, and it was terrible hearing from her because she sent me a text message. Where did you get your wig? So I knew that she was going in for a text. So, but, and actually in some ways, I mean, of course I would never wish it upon anyone, but selfishly, it was really nice to have an ally at work going through very much, very many of the same things. Right. So, um, you know, that was actually something I hadn't expected. Um, that was really, really nice to have that support. So then when the time finally came, when I, when I made it through chemo, And then I still had to do radiation and I had to have about 20 rounds of radiation and that was going in every business day, going in for radiation. I just was, I just told her, I said, I just can't do it. I don't know why I'm still trying. I mean, it was, it was a really good distraction, a really good reason to get up and get out the door. I took off the days that I needed to take off when I just couldn't get out of bed. Um, But otherwise it was a good way for me to still keep things going, but it was really hard. I think you know, looking back, I probably shouldn't have gone to work, at least in the beginning, because those those harsher ones were harsher than I could have ever expected. Um, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm proud of myself for going through with it and staying engaged with people, because otherwise I couldn't bear the idea of just sitting at home either. No, that would have been... Uh, and this is also, keep in mind, January, February, March... In New York in City. In New York City, it's the worst. Um so, you know, I, I had that to keep me occupied, but then I had some really great things to keep me occupied, like planning a wedding, which is also really hard when you're working I and going it. through chemo. I, I hated wedding planning <laughs> with just like a, with a, with a normal, easy life. I hated yeah. wedding planning, but. Yeah. But it's, it's funny because it made what could have been sour moments quite sweet. I have a really fond memory of being at the Brooklyn Infusion Center. That's part of, uh, I was went to Memorial Sloan Kettering and they have a center down in, uh, by Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, which made it super convenient for me to go to. And I can just remember sitting there with Matt and we were, we'd had a little assembly line as I'm getting chemo to do, to send out our save the dates. <laughs> and it was from the chemo chair that we also booked part of the things on our honeymoon. And, you know, it was, we had some really sweet moments then too. Um, so that was actually really nice. Uh, also the thing that was really unexpected to me and something that I try to remember and take with me in my life now too, is I had to make a lot of decisions really fast without overthinking things. And I can, I tend to overthink things. But when it was a life or death thing where I had to decide, am I going to get a second opinion about all this stuff? No, I trust this guy. Let's go. Surgery, 
let's do it in the next week right. if we can. Freeze R- rip, eggs. Rip these eggs out of my body. Exactly. It's like, freezer. oh, I have to do it based on when, you know, my cycle obviously is. Now's the optimal time. Let's start. And I was just making really quick decisions, which also, as you're saying, you hate hate uh, wedding planning. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make a lot of decisions when you're planning a wedding. And you can agonize over them yes. or not. Do I want the ivory or the white napkins? I don't care. You know, I just, I had to make a lot of decisions. So even um, I've got, a, you know, a, a funny and actually very sweet but funny story about going wedding dress shopping. Uh, I won't get into the whole thing, but when I was right before I started chemo, I was home for Christmas. And so uh, I went with my mom and my sister to go wedding dress shopping in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had an idea of what I wanted. And as we were there, I tried on a number of dresses. Uh, but there was one in particular that I really liked. And we, by the time we were done with the appointment, we came back to it and added a few little embellishments, a little belt, a little something here, something there. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I'm going to feel up for wedding dress shopping later. And I'm here with my mom and my sister. Maybe I should just go ahead and get this one. And most brides I know go and try on so many dresses, have multiple appointments, and I left that day having paid for a wedding dress. Right. Done. You know, we. Check. My mom was like, "All right, where do I sign?" Right. Not life or death decision. No, and it, it wasn't, and it put it into a different. It put put into perspective. There could have been another dress that would have looked better on me, but I loved that one, and honestly, it wasn't worth the stress of having to think about it in the future. And so I ended up getting a dress that day, and so it was just. We looked at, I think, maybe three venues total for, for the wedding. And I said, this is the one I want. Matt said, me too. Great. Where do we sign? So I think that's something I try to take with me now, especially um, I was talking to f- some friends recently and talking about how work can get so crazy. And just to remind ourselves, all we have is our health and our time. And it's up to us how we spend that. But it is your perspective. That's mm-hmm. why you're here today. Yes. So, I mean, I followed very loosely on Facebook, not like a real <laughs> human friend, you know? Yeah. As all of your cancer unfolded and your wedding photos, as this is like something we do. Um, but this summer, I kind of like came back to life and you had a poem published in the New York Times. Yes. So freaking fancy. And that was a part. <laughs> I know. I'm so jealous. I have no New York Times bylines. Uh, and you've been published. You had your wedding in the Times. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And now a poem. You're So you're very serious New Yorker. And you wrote the poem as part of the Memorial Sloan Kettering visible ink program. Yes. So tell me about that program. Sure. Uh, So basically anyone who has been treated at Memorial Sloan Kettering or has worked there, I think, can be a part of this program. And you don't have to be currently in treatment to be a part of it. So uh, I actually had already been done with treatment, but while I was going through chemo and going through everything, that's when I started writing more. And sometimes it was just jotting things down in my phone, thoughts or feelings or uh, a turn of phrase that just hit me and I would kind of slowly work on it. And so basically by the time I was done with treatment, maybe it was right before the wedding, uh, I had written a poem that I thought was pretty great. And I said, I want people to read this. And I started trying to look for ways online. (laughs) Actually, I think I Googled something like, something like, um, 
cancer poem submission contest award or something, <laughs> something like that. I'm like, there's got to be somebody out there that cares. <laughs> and that's actually how I came across Visible Ink. I'm actually shocked I didn't hear about it while I was going through treatment. You know, right. I guess they have so many things going on there. Um, you know, doctors don't always first think of, you know, writing therapy. They just want to get you through uh, what you got to do. So I reached out to the woman that runs it, Judith Kelman. She uh, she assigned me to a mentor and who's a professional writer. And she and I just corresponded over email. And I would send her my poems, and she would give her feedback. And it was one of those things, take it or leave it. I think you did this really great. Or, you know, this feels like maybe a little repetitive to something you said earlier, or it's pulling the, you know, it's it's tainting the emotion or what have you. She would give me feedback. And I've never been a professional writer. The only any feedback I've ever gotten from writing has been from a teacher. And right. you, you just don't want to take, you either don't want to take any of their advice or you take all of it so you can get a good grade. Yes. It was the first time I was hearing, having somebody outside of, anybody that I knew read something I had written and she, she her comments did a great job of making um, helping me make that poem even stronger so uh, that poem uh, was called nowadays and I kind of had a sub sub line for that called stage one guilt because it was all about um, all about uh, just the feelings that I had going through treatment but then also knowing that I knew other women, like the copywriter that I mentioned that I worked with before. She's unfortunately since passed away from breast cancer. And so I had these mixed emotions of feeling like, you know, what I went through was really hard, but other people have it harder. And am I allowed to have the feelings that I have about my own experience? And you'd think just by nature of having to go through it, I'd feel like I, I allowed to have those feelings. But when I would talk to other women that had to battle cancer for so much longer um, or lost their battle or are battling it still, you know, seven or eight or nine years into it, um, it, it's hard to reconcile those feelings. And so that's what that poem was all about. And I realized how great the program was for me. So I kept writing. And then this past year, uh, wrote this other poem. And like I mentioned, I, I'm still constantly telling myself or trying to remind myself mm-hmm. of the lessons I learned and the feelings that I had coming out of everything. And so once I started getting, once I became healthy again, fully healthy, gained weight back and just got energy back and just could leave everything in the past, um, I realized I started kind of going into the same repetitive nature of kind of where I was before I went through all of that. And I was getting stressed out about work and I was worried about petty things. And uh, that's, I just started thinking about this, this cycle and also thinking about how I felt that way before I got cancer. And you know, I didn't want to have to get cancer again to remind myself of the lessons I learned and that every day is precious. And so those are the things that I was thinking about when I wrote this poem. Should I just, yeah, should I read it now? Let's read it. Let's okay. do it. So um, I'll go ahead and say what's interesting about this is that I'm going to read it for you forwards, but then at the end of the poem, there's a little note that says to read it again, but one line at a time from the bottom up. So basically to read it backwards. I'm bored by the repetition of day-to-day life. So I rarely feel like each day is a gift. Now, I know I can't explain how it feels to believe that to be normal makes me feel like all I want is the unexpected. 
Then my world turned upside down. The unexpected makes me feel like all I want is to be normal. I can't explain how it feels to believe that I know now each day is a gift. So I rarely feel like I'm bored by the repetition of day-to-day life. That's so nice. Thank you. Um, I love this because in actually very few words, it captures how I felt kind of before and after. And the repetition that we all... structure is like bomb ass Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So smart. Thank you. And simple. Yeah. It is simple. And I purposely said that what I was looking for in life before everything happened was something unexpected. And so you know how when I mentioned at the very beginning of us talking about how when you write, it's usually because you're feeling something deeply and you want to find a way to write it down. I felt like I had gotten to a point in my life where things were good, very much a plateau though. I had nothing to complain about. I had a great job, great relationship, lived in New York City, um, but I, I didn't feel like I was feeling as much. And uh, But I couldn't complain either. It was just this kind of happy medium, but at the same time didn't really feel like, it, feel like it had much meaning. And then, you know, you get a diagnosis like this and literally everything goes upside down. And so even though I had wanted something exciting to happen or something unexpected, right. you don't really hope for cancer. But at the end of the day... Um, you know, I, I had the cancer that you'd want to get, uh, if you get it and, and I was fine and I had a very clear treatment path. The doctors knew what to do. They had, they, they knew exactly what would happen with this kind that I had. And, um, so luckily I could, I could kind of rest in, in knowing that that was going to be okay. Um, but also I just found during that time, you know, of course, relationships strengthened, um, you know, with my family, with my friends, obviously with Matt. And um, something we kept talking about is, you know, we kind of had to live our vows before we took them. And, um, you know, that was something that that actually was wonderful in a way. I'm making a face. Right. Um, wonderful <laughs> to go through, to know that when we were up there taking our vows. That you'd, and, already, you'd already done it. Yeah. Well, of course, we get to the part in sickness and in health. Matt can't quite get the words out. So he, you know, is having a hard time. And he, like, looks over at our friend who was marrying us almost for support, you know, as he's trying mm-hmm. to get the words out. And then I think everybody else started crying and it was a whole thing because everybody knew, (laughs) you know, everybody knew our story. Um, But, and then I'm just sitting here thinking, I can't cry, I have makeup on. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it was a really, it was a really beautiful moment. And I think that it just deepened and strengthened relationships for us. And so, again, I'm one of the lucky ones that had a very clear path um, and I'm totally healthy now. And I can, I have this perspective and I can look back on it, but I find that I almost treat this poem as a mantra. So I will have a terrible day at work and I'll feel like I'm doing the same thing and I'm repeating my actions and, and all of these things, but I will literally start saying the poem to myself and I make sure I do it forwards and backwards just to remind myself. It's a little prayer. It is. It is. And it just, uh, it definitely, it, it boosts me and it recenters me just in those few words to remind myself of what's important. Are there things, like specific things that you really appreciate now that you did in the past? 
it's this, I mean, the, the one that comes to mind over and over to, to me is a really small thing, but I take this with me all the time. Being in New York, you're always on the move. You're always trying to get around the person in front of you going as fast as you can. And when I was going through chemo, I just did not have the energy. And it's not like, like I'm yawning and I'm tired. It's just my body physically could not move that fast right. or with that level of energy. And I can remember... Oh my gosh, I would have squashed you. Sorry. Oh yeah, you totally would have. And many people nearly did. And actually, I mean, there was one time because I would always, where my office was, I would always walk up steps in Grand Central. And Grand Central, uh, as you can imagine, if you don't live here, can be a chaotic place to go in and out of on your way to work because there's people going in every different direction. And I can remember this one moment where I was coming upstairs and I was out of breath and I finally had basically like squat without quite touching the ground because that's gross Um, (laughs) over to the side to let people pass me. And I had to catch my breath and I just really wasn't feeling well. And I can remember seeing this, you know, very well healed, gorgeous woman just as if Grand Central was her walkway, just strutting down right in front of me. And I just remember thinking like, wow, her legs look strong. She looks strong. And she is having no problem just putting one foot in front of the other. And I envied that so much. And every now and then, now, I'll be walking and I'll just say to myself, I am strong. And I realized that I am like walking with this spring in my step that it's hard to remember not being able to do that. I mean, I physically wasn't able to do it. And now when I have that energy and I can just, you know, you know, bop all over the place and go past people, um, I just I don't take that for granted. But at the same time, when there is somebody in front of me who's going slow and even if they look young and healthy, or if they don't, you know, but especially if you, you don't see anything like a walking cane or anything right. that is an outward display of any disability and you're just like, oh, they're going so slow. Why can't you move faster? I'm trying to get to wherever I'm trying to get to. I have so much more patience now. And I think that's really hard to come by in New York when you're surrounded by all these people. You can be in your own little world. I'm much more cognizant of other people that are around me. Yeah, I'm so guilty. <laughs> See now, hopefully you'll think about it on all on all fronts. Even Bruno's terrible. Even mm-hmm. he races by people. So, and the casserole tonight is in that kind of spirit too, mm-hmm. right? So, like, did you grow up with casseroles? You said you were trying to think of them. Yeah, but you I was like... trying to think of them. Uh, honestly, my mom didn't love cooking growing oh, up, so I mean. Okay. Yes, it and seems no. like casseroles would have been perfect for I her. know, it probably would have been. Um, I, I feel like she always did a turkey tetrazzini or something, but I, I don't know. I can't remember. That's, I mean, that's definitely a casserole. Yeah. Well, I, the dish, I mean, casseroles to me are pure comfort, and there's nothing luxurious, and there's really nothing special about them other than the fact that you're sitting down with people and eating and enjoying a meal. So I had a ton of judgment. I guess when I when I was younger and only doing like local and farm to table food, <laughs> which as much th- like the chickens from the farmers market, things are from the farmers market for this yeah. too. It like hasn't gone away, but just to really appreciate the effort that mostly women and moms put into mm-hmm. food and having their families sit around a table. So this was like super basic. It's macaroni and ham and chicken Mm. and green olives, which was really why I was like, that's weird. So I like weird stuff and some (laughs) Swiss cheese and sour cream. And that's it. And some roasted Brussels sprouts and obviously some wine. Um, 
So I just wanted Sounds to make delicious. something that was like delicious, but not that special. It's yeah. not that special. No, it's great. But we also shouldn't You're have like... You're making dinner for me. I love it. We shouldn't have to have special occasions <laughs> well, to reconnect with people after yeah. one million years. And oh my God. <laughs> food is also just a way of taking care of people, you know? Yes. There's something nice when somebody makes you a meal, you feel taken care of. I think it's time, it's time to, to eat. eat casserole. Yes. I'm just, this This means so much to me. I'm so happy to have yeah. you here and healthy and like, and and to be so like open about your story. Yeah. And I wanted to fit this into Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but I was totally crazy with scheduling. And, but I, I think that women need those reminders all the time. It all made me time. really just want to touch my boobs. Yeah, do like, it. Like a lot. Do it. Like I just wanted to like... <laughs> I'm like, no. w- William's going to listen to this podcast yes. episode too and be like, Can- may I touch your breasts more? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, truly. I mean, so many people ask me, you know, how did you know that what you felt was wrong? I mean, for me, it was it was a really obvious feeling, but it's not super obvious for everybody. And the the more you know how you normally feel the more you'll know if something feels wrong. So doing it, they always say to feel it, feel it on the first. So, you know, do a little feel yourself up mm-hmm. situation uh, on the first of every month is a good way to remember. Um, obviously go to all your doctor's appointments and then just also remember that you are your best advocate. You know, I could have waited and thought maybe it would go away or I didn't have to act on things as fast and everybody handles things differently. So, you know, there's that. But it was something where I felt really strongly that I needed to go see a doctor as soon as I felt this, something wasn't right. And I luckily had doctors that were quick in supporting me and we got to take care of it. So um, you really just have to listen to yourself and listen to your body. And the more you know about your body, the better you can look out for it. Okay. So... Go, go feel yourself up go, tonight. Yeah, <laughs> ladies. <laughs> On that <Mic> note. drop. <laughs> it's dinner time. This is like the texture is... Yeah, it's good, right? Yeah. It's really good. It's really good. But they also don't mesh together so much that they're not still individual pieces. You know what I mean? Like you can still taste each thing. We use bigger pasta than shells because we, that's what I had. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good yeah. reason. Yeah, that's what we had. William made me dinner for the first time in a, four years. Probably. Oh wow! Uh, this week, and he used pasta shells. He was it was actually quite successful. Good well, for it you. took a long time, a really long time, but it it was successful yeah. nonetheless. So I think it was a thirty minute meal, and I think I made it in thirty six. No, less. No, like like an hour, but that's cute. That's nice. <laughs> that's fine. Three hours later, Sarah and I had sufficiently caught up on life, and I am happy to report that she recently cooked her very first casserole. Welcome to the club, Sarah. Genuinely, this podcast has been an incredible way for me to connect with my community, and it turns out long lost friends. This episode is dedicated to all the ladies. For those of us who will get a diagnosis in the future, for my sister survivors, my grandma, friends with Braca, for Becky, I love you all casseroles aren't going to save the day but if you're listening take a night take a moment and bake a casserole for someone you care about and keep it creamy